Welcome to the Potion Podcast, your raw look at the hospitality industry, brought to you by SHC. What has happened to Shifters? Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Podcast. For Christmas time, I'm picking out some of my favorite episodes, some of. Uh, last week, of course, was Jeffrey Morgan Thaler, which he was my 100th episode um, back almost two years ago, which is absolutely insane to think about. But this one's even more insane because this was a year ago, almost a year ago, January this year um, of 2021. This is my interview with Jill Coxon, uh, just an amazing, amazing entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you're enjoying the um, the special ones that I really, really like and I really look back at fondly. So thanks as always, guys. Have a good week. Bye. Your podcast, of course, I'm your host, Sean Sewell. Um, I'm really excited for today's episode. Um, this this amazing entrepreneur that I met, ooh, I want to say six, it's almost six years ago, which seems like it's a lifetime ago, and she is just absolutely killed it since then like, i think we we sat down and chatted at the portland cocktail week uh six years ago and she was contemplating opening her first restaurant or first bar and then all of a sudden like in the last six years nothing has pretty much stopped her and she's in the process of opening a venue during this crazy time that we have in the industry right now so i'm very 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 stoked to have uh, jill cox an award-winning bartender and entrepreneur out of kansas city with me on the show i'm just going to do one more thing before I jump onto bringing her on just so that everybody out there can comment. So if you're watching the live stream, you can comment along and uh, ask questions and that will be passed on to Jill and she can ask, answer any questions you've got. Um, but thank you so much for joining me today, Jill. Hey, thanks. Good to see you. Good to see you. It has been a while. Like I always feel like this. it's been interesting with the podcast and stuff because I have a list of people that I want to interview face-to-face. Um, and that list is getting smaller and smaller because as <laughs> these lockdowns and these travel restrictions continue, it's like, okay, there's no tales this year. So that's like 25 people I would have interviewed that I need to put, rotate into my live streams um, because I just I like face-to-face a bit more than – technological like advances like this where you can talk via zoom via restream and all that sort of stuff so how's your how's your year been well how tw- how was 2020 let's kick up like uh, yeah, 20, 25 days into it but yeah uh 2020 i mean like everybody else it was pretty surreal um you know it's it's not we're not over it yet but uh um, we actually opened a second um location in kansas city during the pandemic we opened in june um, and so, and then working on the next one right now, um, no, it's, I mean, for us, we're like, I said, we're, we're small, you know, all of our concepts are very small, very low overhead, very sustainable and proving to be resilient, um, even through this, which I gives me hope, um, to participate in a conversation going forward about our industry and, and using it as an opportunity to recognize sustainability, sustainability issues that need to be worked on in the industry in general. Do you, I've been preaching this from the get-go for for owners, operators, and staff alike, that if you come out of COVID the same way you went in, that you sort of have missed the point of what COVID has, like the silver lining of COVID and the lockdowns and stuff has created in a way that if you if you come out of it thinking we're going to do this in the same way, this, the industry the same way, or if you're a staff member that you didn't do any of the free training that was available and stuff like that, like you're sort of missing the opportunity of this sort of time on your hands absolutely you know i mean everything we've, we've found ways to improve you know we use the shutdown time to make some aesthetic improvements um we've improved but i think best practices at the bar some of the things we should have been doing before um but you know the uh some of the covid restrictions you know going to a completely touch-free garnish system um that has not proved to be difficult and we'll, i'm sure we'll keep it going forward 
Um, you know, everything from just tightening up, you know, responsibilities, labor, prep, you know, just come, sh- everything, everywhere you can work to increase efficiencies and also increase secondary and tertiary revenues, revenue streams. Um, you know, it's forced everybody to get creative. And I feel like the ones that are, uh, most of the ones that are, um, um, succeeding or, you know, surviving, I should say, um, are, are the ones where you just see boots on the ground and heads coming together and people getting creative. And that's, I think that's where our industry thrives. You know, we're full of hardworking, creative people. And I think you're, we're seeing the, we're seeing the, that shine right now with a lot of places. Do you, do you feel like, do you feel that COVID is just another big hurdle? I, I feel like our industry as operators and managers and stuff like every day is there's a hurdle on every day. It might be a small hurdle, like oh, one of the toilets blocked up or one your, your bar back didn't show up on a Friday night because he was hung over from the night before. I just feel like this is, a, it's a big hurdle, but it's just another hurdle in our industry. Like this is literally, we're fire, we're fire people. Like we, we come in and put out a fire every single day. Yeah, I always I always refer to our industry as professional whack-a-mole. You know, it's kind of like if you don't if you don't thrive with whack-a-mole, like you're just I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a con- controlled chaos. You know, like you said, you come in with a plan for the day, and then oh shit, the door lock mechanisms broke, or the toilet's not working, or the freezer went out last night. You know, whatever it is, you know, it's it's you're just constantly adapting. And I think that's where I've with one of the areas that I've been, I guess not disappointed to see, but. Because that's the nature of our industry, I, I was a, a little, um, I guess, maybe surprised to see a lot of people cave so quickly, you know, to be, to not even try to come up with second attempts. You know, we've seen places close that I feel like didn't even do anything to try to adapt or didn't even try to, um, you know, they, and, and I realized certainly, you know, there's, there's a lot of business models that just weren't going to be able to survive with the restrictions that were put in place. But there were also a lot of places that, you know, I think, man, if they just would have tried something and as far as a hurdle I mean it's a hurdle but I hear a lot of people talking about returning to normal and I don't think that's something we should do either you know I mean a uh, normal for our industry isn't good it's by by and large it's a it, 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 it fails but by and large you know the majority of places that open fail and so I don't think that's something that we should aspire to return to I think that we should look at this as an opportunity to figure out where we can do better do you think we romance the past a lot? Like, do we? Do you think that we we romance our systems? We romance the like the fact that our technology is not really like. I don't know that we. I want to talk about your TED talk from last year because I really enjoyed it because I'm a bit of a techie. So for me and a friend of mine and I, when we set up his parents' restaurant, we did renovations. It's a 40 year old New York Italian style place here in Victoria. Been around for 40 years. Do 650 covers a day during. Uh, service and when he took over only like five years ago he put in a pos before that was still all handwritten shits and like counted off yourself calculated the whole shebang do you think that sometimes we romance the past and i agree with you in the new normal like our systems are flawed our the way we do business is flawed even our culture to, our culture is flawed Absolutely. You know, and I always, I love uh, Jessica Sanders is one of my favorite people in the industry. And I have a, I heard her say a great quote one night. So I don't know if it's her or if she got this from somewhere, but I, um, I, I repeat it all the time. I got it from her is acclimating to a bad system doesn't make it a good one. And I think that that's something that we all need to keep in mind at all times, that just because you're used to doing things one way, you know, we've always done it this way, doesn't make it a good system. You know, you really do have to think critically about your systems. And as you evolve, as trends evolve, as your business plans evolve, you need to think critically about each one and about, you know, how those processes function for your brand and in your business environment. 
um, and always be critical of, of your own systems, you know, and I, I adhere to a lot of old school systems because they work for my size and scale. Um, but I do realize that there is a size and scale where they would not work. And, um, you know, everybody just needs to kind of, I, I think, pick on that spectrum where they are and choose what technologies and, and uh, um, evolutions are, are appropriate for them. So let's take it back. I, I, I'm a bit of a comic book nerd. I, I got rid of my comic book stuff behind me because it just the way my room's set out now. But I've got like a whole stack load of comic books in my corner and whatnot and Funko Pop freaking hulks and tony starks on my bar top um where did you where did you get your start how did you get into the industry in the way that you've gone from starting in the industry to right now um i think like most people i got into the industry because i was bartending through college um I, it was a, it was a way to not have to work seven nights a week in retail and be able to pay my rent and bills and have some time to study um and then of course, I pursued a completely non-practical degree and that was expensive and I came out of college with a lot of debt and I was making more money as a bartender than I was going to with, you know, an entry-level professional position. What was the degree? Um, so I, I stayed the course. Um, after about a year of grad school, you know, kind of just decided to cut my losses altogether, just realized I was digging that hole deeper and deeper and there wasn't going to be much of an employment future that justified it. And I liked what I did, you know, kind of during that time, somewhere along the line, I fell in love with what I was doing. I got to meet interesting people all the time. You know, I, I'm, I've always been a night person. I've never been a nine to fiver. Um, so a lot of things just uh, kind of worked out. Um, and then I would say it, it wasn't about 13 years into my career where I had an opportunity to come on um, as an owner with the other room. I think that's about the time we met. We might have met earlier than 2015. Um, but I, uh, I was lucky to be able to uh, uh, test kind of some business theories in a, in a market on somebody else's dime, but they were bring, they were willing to bring me in with an earned ownership position. And, you know, our, our little experiment worked and it just kind of blew my mind. I felt like I discovered things about the back of businesses in our industry that I wasn't supposed to know. You know, I feel, you know, you just don't have the opportunity to see the numbers. And, I, and that's another thing I think we really need to fix. People need to pressure managers and owners to be part of the conversation about numbers because you really do need to understand as an employee at every level what your function is and what you're bringing to the table what you're costing what you could be bringing in and when people really see that full picture i think it just uh, it, you don't just become a cog in a machine anymore you start to realize like wow i have an important role everybody everybody's important um but yeah that uh, that first venture with the other room in lincoln was mind-blowing i mean just things that i had never considered about the business environment um, the rule is there's no rules, you know, you start, you, you know, and I just, I started realizing that there was this, uh, amazing opportunity for entrepreneurship that was in reach, that was affordable. So when it comes to transparency, uh, I, I feel the same way. So for all my staff on a regular, on a daily basis, whenever I get the sales figures in, I'll tell them how much we made top line revenue, how much our per head spend was, how many covers we were. Do you find it does breed that level of ownership and them understanding, as you said, like understanding exactly what they bring to the table. Like I've had conversations with staff in the past about per head spend and they're like, well, I don't really think that it applies for us. And I'm like, but why? <laughs> like per head spend is a super important thing to look at. Absolutely. I mean, everything we, we share everything we do. We also do a, a 5% profit share with non-owner employees. So, you know, the more, the better they, they understand the numbers and how they work and their role in that, the more money they make, you know, a little extra money in their pockets, but it's everything. I mean, it's everything from, Drinking on the job, which I see as theft in in multiple ways. I mean, you're probably not paying for those drinks, and now you're you're not not as good at what you do. 
And as a result of not being as good at what you do, you are costing the business money. And the entitlement that our industry has developed to be able to show up and and burn through other people's cash is, is, is one of those like mind-blowing things to me. Um, everything from, you know, just efficiency and setup and prep, you know, everything needs to be grab ready on a Friday night, Saturday night. You know, I don't want to see anybody transferring liquids from bottle to bottle, you know, like, like your know, juices or whatnot. You know, I, I want everything to be grab ready and ready to go prepped ahead of time. I always say the ability for our little, one of our little bars to do one more drink every 15 minutes on just a Friday and Saturday um, has the potential over the year to translate into $40,000 a year, made or lost. So when you start really getting people to understand every step is important, every every miss, every misstep is waste. Every you know second that you're spending not making a drink or or exchanging money is is losing money. Um, the, I think it starts to paint a different picture for the importance of their role. It starts to instill that sense of pride in what they do. You know. So with uh, what what year did you open up Swordfish Tom's? What year? Uh, 2017. Man, you've been busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably a better word <laughs> well yeah i just had a conversation with someone about uh partners and i was like my wife doesn't try to understand me but she accepts me for who i am because i think anybody other hospitality people can try and understand you because they're in the, in the same world but like my wife's out of the industry like not in the industry so she just accepts me for who i am she just sort of pats my head and it's like yes dear no problems at all you're mentally unstable when you you work 14 15 hour days and just do it seven days a week um but you have been busy so swordfish swordfish tom was your was your first standalone uh venue yes um so i the the other room i was i you know even though i was so grateful to have the opportunity there i'm still friends you know with partners there um i was never going to be a majority owner you know so i, I got a really, really great education um and and, and the opportunity to, to attempt a business model that I thought would work, but, you know, hadn't, tr- hadn't tried yet. And that gave me the, um, you know, the empirical evidence, I guess, to attract investors for my own place. I had a, you know, the, the P&Ls for that to say, hey, look, I have this concept. It works. And, and I got the offer to um, replicate it in Kansas City, which is where I graduated from college. So I moved back to my college town to be Swordfish Toms as the majority owner. I have partners, um, but I, it was I, it was the first one I could be the majority owner of. So what uh, for the, for the uninitiated? What is uh, your concept around Swordfish Tom's? So we are a, you know, pre-prohibition inspired um, cocktail and spirits bar. Um, you know, people are going to use the word speakeasy because we're in a basement. You know, with an alley entrance. You know, I don't I don't usually use that word, but you know, it is what it is. Um, we're in an old boiler room, so we take advantage of the uh, you know the decor and the the the, the history of the building. Um, we serve only spirits and cocktails, no beer or wine. Oh, wow. No food. We don't have to have, we're, we're lucky here. We don't have to serve food. We have a tavern license. So people can feel free to grab food next door and bring it with them if they want, but I don't have to deal with it. Um, other than cocktails to go, that's a weird thing, but maybe we'll get there. Um, yeah. So it's just a, it's very small. We are a, even during pre COVID times, the fire marshal says our capacity is 66. We say it's 30. Um, so, you know, about 35 people, you know, depending on how the groups show up and what size, it's the game of Tetris every night. Um, you know, but I always say your max capacity is the number of people that you can serve well in accordance with your brand. It's not a number on a, on a piece of paper on the wall. Um, so, you know, we, we adhere to that very strictly. And once we hit the point where, you know, the room is full and there's, if we add more people, it's just going to decrease the value of that, their experience. We, we cut it off. 
So I we were talking about your the unique business model that you were talking about that you sort of set in play. Um, and I'm going to keep bringing up that uh, TED Talk because I think that everybody needs to – it was called ret- Retrovation and Entrepreneurship, which uh, is – it was a really good talk. So s- go through a couple because I think – there's some things that people will be like, oh, well, that's speakeasy-ish or Alibar-ish. Alibar. Alibar is um, what we call uh, sort of speak, like what your bar would, like Sawfish Toms would be in Australia. Like they're not really speakeasies, but they're down the alleys. Um, so you only do cash. You have no house phone. Correct. <laughs> What are some of the other interesting, like, it even makes you laugh, is like, what's some other other interesting things that people, like you have, you've, you've, you've honed down and you've modeled a niche in a way that instead of being absolutely everything to everybody, which I think now is starting to spring back heavily, what sort of things was, was going into creating Swordfish Toms that you were like, I have to have this? So, you know, and, and I'm, I also start with, I'm always open to the idea that, you know, I can stand corrected, you know, that maybe, maybe there's, you know, me adhering to some of these things is, you know, to my detriment at some point, I might find that out. But for now, you know, this, this works. Um, we are just simple. You know, my, my dad ran grocery stores back before there were barcodes when we were hand counting inventory and actually having to do the math and spreadsheets and paper. And I just fell in love with that. I fell in love with the simplicity and the ability to have a bird's eye view of your numbers, have a hands-on relationship with your inventory. You know, we're small enough that we can do a tenth of the bottle count every week. You know, if I was a giant club in Vegas, I might not be able to do that, you know. Um, you know, that, that smallness has its advantages. You know, just, just like in any sort of martial arts situation, there's advantages to being huge, there's advantages to being small, and you have to learn where your advantages are. Um, we, yeah, we're cash only. Um, so instead of paying Visa a percentage of my money, you know, I... I gain a dollar transaction fee. We, we own the ATM. So I get to keep that dollar off of every transaction. And what it does, you know, it's not about, everybody, everybody thinks it's about, you know, skimming off the top or oh, you get to be like, you know, cash only. It's like what it really does is speed up transaction time for us. On a Friday and Saturday night, I have to be able to turn the room six times um, if I want to hit our, our, our goals. And I can't be caught up messing with buttons and electronics. And, you know, I, I hate the idea that it takes longer to ring a drink in sometimes than it takes to make it. I realize some of the POS systems are getting better. But, um, you know, I, I just wanted it to be very quick. Um, so in exchange for that dollar, we can also keep our price points a little lower. We don't have any expenses associated with the POS system every month. You know, we don't have to deal with, you know, any of the technology of it going down. Um, it's it's just a very quick, easy transaction process for us, and we gain that secondary income stream from our ATM. Um, our ATM here in Lincoln, our ATM, our dollar fee, almost paid our rent every month. The rent in Lincoln, it was obnoxiously low. Like, I mean, I, I will make people cry if I say how low our rent was. But in Kansas City, um, our rent, our, our ATM at Swordfish pays um, about twenty percent of our rent, and our and, and at the other space, about half of our rent. So, you know, that just, I mean, adding those little secondary income streams, like, you know, and then offsetting your, your balance sheet that way is, is, a is huge. I think that's a big thing. I've been, I've been preaching sort of doing way more sort of formulas and stuff. And I talked to a lot of operators. I'm like, what's your break even point? 
and they're like um and like you said visa and mastercard and those things like i remember i was talking to an old restaurant tour uh he's been in the business for like 50 years and he was like you know back in the day we just walk up to the bank with like bags of cash myself my partner my manager just bags of cash and we just drop it off um now i gotta pay twenty five thousand dollars a year to freaking mastercard and visa just to have the the privilege of taking card payments um that is, it is uh, an interesting, it is when people don't really understand, like I've seen a lot of people's like projected P&Ls and you look at the, they don't put the cost of credit card things in there. I'm like, that's, it's a massive, massive uh, expense. So I'm very curious, actually, I, I was reading a couple of articles about yourself. Um, you were a black belt in Taiwan, Taekwondo when you were 10 years old? Oh, yeah, but you know, I, I, I couldn't fight my way out of a wet paper bag. <laughs> point in my life so you know yeah but yeah i had a, I had a great my, my the instructor i had was awesome he was super inspirational and then you i read the article that you were paralyzed from the knees down when you were 15 yeah actually so the injury was uh mid-back but the permanent damage ended up being um uh, a neuropathy in my feet you know basically all the, all the damage luckily for me I, they told me at first i wasn't going to walk again and then luckily the permanent damage ended up being uh peripheral nerve damage not my actual spinal cord so um, where those nerves led was about about knees down on both uh, uh, both both sides. So my feet don't work. You know, I, I don't have any pain. So my feet don't work. I wear braces on my feet to keep them flat. Um, but that's the irony. The silver lining of that is that is what has forced me to think about efficiency of steps. You know, I don't think I would be near the the efficiency minded bar tender or bar owner if that were not a forced situation for me. And I I only hope to be able to use my experience to help other people think about that, you know, how important those steps are by minimizing the steps that your bartenders make. You know, you do everything from reduced potential injuries and collisions to minimizing the number of people on staff on a particular night. If you can get it down to, you know, one or two bartenders instead of three, because everything is where it needs to be. And it's a, and it's a Ferrari. Now they all make more money because they're not splitting tips three ways. They're splitting tips two ways. You retain your staff. I mean, like the, all of these gears, you know, I always, I use the analogy of a bicycle a lot. You know, people often have all the bike parts, you know, they have a, they have the pedals, they have the seat, they have the handlebars, they have the gear, you know, the, they, they have the chain, but none of it's the right size to work together. You know, your, your business needs to be a machine that is geared correctly to actually run. And, um, and the more efficient you make that you hit this sweet spot where you can make more money on less people. You know, our industry needs to stop and have more math driven models and less passion driven models in my opinion, you know, and not that passions are not important. I mean, it is, but you know, the work smarter, not harder. I know it sounds so cliche, but it's, it's absolutely true. When you start thinking about the math of how these gears work together, you know, you can do simple things and make more money than you would on something twice the size. A hundred percent. I, I always sort of the, it's all well and good to have passion, but if you can't keep the lights on, your passion sort of dwindles very, very quickly. You know, if there's no place for your, if there's no crucible for your passion to exist in, then uh, there's no real point having passion whatsoever. So let's move on to drastic measures. When did you, did you open drastic measures last year? Is that right? Yeah, we opened. So oddly, this was not planned, but both bars had the same birthday of June 22nd. Um, Swordfish opened June 22nd of 17 and um, drastic opened June 22nd of 2020. And what was the what's the uh, the theme behind uh, drastic measures? It's basically the the same, you know. Like, like I said, this this model is so replicable. Um, it's basically the same as Swordfish. It's got a different, you know. You, you can tell we're sisters in operation. Um, I have a partner out there. Um, his name's Jay Sanders, who um, I brought on to basically kind of be in charge of of that one. He's actually 
also participating in an earned ownership position out there. I'm really proud of that. Basically, I came in as the majority owner of Drastic with the money partners, and Jay is starting out as a 10% owner. And over the course of five years, he will earn the 50% ownership position, and I will stay on as the permanent 10. Um, he was really ready, um, ambitious and ready for an ownership position and just needs that little extra you know, experience to look at things through owner goggles instead of through manager goggles. He has tremendous owner, or management experience. But that's another thing that, you know, another la layer that our industry lacks. We lack mentorship from, you know, into higher roles. So people often get promoted from bartender to manager with no experience as manager. And then they tank a, play, a business because they were a great, they might have been a great bartender, but they had no management skills. You know, and same can be said from the, the jump from owner, you know, management to ownership. You know, if, if you were a great manager but never learned to look at things through ownership eyes or never got the opportunity to, you know, you just you're going to fail. And, and if you can't fake it till you make it or if you don't have enough capital to, uh, you know, to, to make the mistakes and learn from them, you know, you're, you're screwed. So I, I'm really enjoying the idea of putting together, you know, mentorship to ownership positions. And how do you go about that, breeding that sort of culture? Um, because I, I do agree with you, like you're not necessarily in our sort of style of place. Well, it does happen. Like what you're the, the bar manager leaves and you're the most senior bartender. So guess what? You're the manager now. Right. You, you've been here for three months. You're the manager now. And you're just like, okay, cool. But I, I talk to a lot of these kids and I'm like, so how do you do your costings? And I think that goes true to chefs as well. Like, chef, like back of house is just as bad as front of house when it comes to that. So how do you breed the culture to sort of – be so self-aware that this is the direction that you need to take? Well, one is, I mean, hyper-communication, you know, me me leading by example, you know, that I, to this day, you know, I mean, I work both bars and at the end of the shift, I clean the toilets and mop the floors and there's nothing I'm expecting anybody to do that I don't do myself on top of the administrative things and having open conversations with them on shifts about how I spent my day and what, you know, you know, and giving them the opportunity to ask questions, you know, and how, you know, how much does your bookkeeper cost? One of my bartenders right now is working on opening a place, you know, and I love that I can be, you know, where, where my information proves to be beneficial to him. I love that I can help him along the way and help him put together a pro forma for a business. You know, you said the, the break even number, you know, uh, uh, earlier and I, it blows my mind how many business owners can't tell you that, you know, I mean, that should just be a number that, you know, immediately, you know, like, I, I mean, the break even number for both places, luckily for us, is low, you know, because we're such low, we have such low overhead. But man, it's it's mind blowing how many people in the industry just can't even tell you that simple fact. Um, you know, not having management, you know, I always say that our industry is kind of a, I refer to it as a fetish industry, you know, it's the industry that everybody wants to do in their retirement. You know, you never hear somebody say, I want to open a little auto shop when I'm retired. Nobody <laughs> says that. You know, they say, I want to open a bar or a restaurant. That seems to be everybody's dream. And the problem with that is if you don't have experience as a manager or owner, you don't have even the basic skill set to vet and hire your general manager. You know, I mean, it'd be like me being hired to vet and hire the next round of surgeons for a heart hospital. You know, I have no ability to do that. I can look at a bunch of resumes. Gee, they all look impressive. Oops, sorry. Lost myself. <laughs> um, you know, they all look impressive, but if you don't have the skill set to be able to ask the right questions, like you said, you know, tell me about your last management job. You know, what were your, what were your inventory processes like? You know, what was your break even numbers? What did you do to improve your, you know, raise your revenue ceiling and lower your, you know, your, uh, um, your fixed costs or your, or your lower your cost of operations? You know, 
if they can't answer those questions, they've never had a real manager job. And that's that's something that sounds mean to say that the word manager in our industry means nothing to me on a resume. You know, it might mean you locked the door at the end of the, uh, at the end of the night. Cool. You know, I want to know, like, were you responsible in a tangible way, you know, for the fiduciary success of that business? And if the answer is no, you haven't been a manager. Yeah. Just drop the mic on that one. I could literally finish the interview off and just go, and that is it. No, it is interesting because I'm part of. I'm back running my old hotel lobby bar from years and years ago. I, I came back after COVID, and and the one thing that the hotel has been very odd about with me being gone and coming back, and obviously hotel mentalities. Usually, your food and beverage outlets, if they break even, great sort of mentality. And I'm like, nope, we've got to make profit, even with our. Um, our wage subsidy that we get, which is 75%, I'm still taking that out and still making profit for the hotel. And I'm like, that's where we need to be. And they're like, but why? Like, you can just work. Like, we're getting it covered. I'm like, no, we're not, though. I'm not getting covered. Like, I haven't worked a bar shift in a number of weeks just because it hasn't been busy enough with our, with our restrictions and stuff like that. So, I've been making sure the staff are looked after and they've got the hours. And like you said, I don't want to go in and split tips four ways. I want to let the t- team work themselves and split three ways. So, what I'm curious that what drives you to one Europe and drastic measures in 2020. Obviously, that that takes months and months of extra planning, and then obviously COVID rocked up, and you're like, ah, it's too late now. We're sort of already in fifth gear. Um, what what sort of made you? What drives you in the morning to then go and do Chartreuse Saloon in 2021? Um, I think there's opportunity right now. I mean, I, I'm really trying to look at COVID as, like I said, the reset button starting conversations with um, with consumers, you know, even about like, this is going to be a, a dialogue that's going to take years, but this is a, a reset opportunity. And with, with every major crisis, I really do believe there's always opportunity to re-gear, rebrand, address ha- the different way that people are spending money and, and, and um, establishing brand loyalty. Um, you know, we've also got the millennials taking over the driver's seat of the economy. So there's a shift happening there. Anytime you have a shift, you have opportunity. Um, you know, I, I think that what people are looking for in an experience when they go out, you know, there's a couple of conversations kind of lingering in the background here. Um, one, I'm going to go back to something you said earlier. The, the, there's too many businesses in our industry that don't need to make money. You know, um, that those passion pro- projects sometimes are funded and they, they miscalibrate the guest expectation for value. You know, so what I, what I, what I mean by that is if, if I spend, you know, a, a couple million dollars on a build out of a fancy establishment and I don't need to make money, the reward that I get is by walking into the door and telling all my friends, hey, I own this place and it's great. Isn't it grand? Perfect. That's awesome. Cool if you can do that. But they're selling things at a price point that don't represent the actual cost of that operation. And so what happens is that when people go out and around town and they, and they compare it to other places and they see like another bar that like, you know, like, like a place like mine, that, hey, I do need to make money and this place is you know, supporting real people that actually make an income and are the breadwinners of their households and our price points are the same. My place isn't as fancy, but it's because my place needs to make money. You know? and, and I think we need to have a conversation about the, how that can be pervasive about the guest expectations in a market for what something is actually worth. Fair, sustainable wages. If everybody was actually making a living um, in our industry, you know, a burger and fries at a sit-down restaurant should start minimum at you know fifteen dollars. You know, I mean, like that's there, there should not you know. So, you know, our industry has made a lot of its money on wage theft, 
you know, it's like, let's talk about, you know, like, there's, like I said, there's so many conversations. Um, so I look at it as an opportunity to provide an example about what can happen as a sustainable model in our industry when you start to create real opportunities, real safe spaces, you know, um, you know, businesses that can provide things like health insurance because you don't have 50 employees, you have four. Another advantage to being small is, you know, we can offer a health insurance stipend to, to uh, uh, full-time employees um, because we don't have 50 of them. We have four, you know. So all of those gears, you know, if you start rethinking the business model and rethinking this as an opportunity to start conversations about like sustainability. I, I love how our industry loves that word, you know, cool. You don't use straws, sustainable. Let's talk about business models being yeah. sustainable and let's, let's see people stick around and have real entrepreneurship opportunity in the future. Do you think that comes a little bit from, uh, the, we sort of, we're trying to, we try and be open and progressive, but we also keep so many cards close to our chests, you know, like even our like mental health and stuff like that. We, we, I've talked about this a ton and, you know, like you have a bad day, like you, you go into work and the chef's pissed off and the toilets are clogged and you talk to your accountant and you didn't have a great month last month. But then as soon as service starts, we're did it, did it, did it. And we're putting on a big show. Do you think that even between industry to industry, peers and, and mentors and, and people that we aren't transparent with ourselves and with our business because we still hold our cars. Like no one wants to know that the the, the last big award-winning bar is hemorrhaging money every every month. Like they don't want to know that. So do you think we keep our, our as operators, we keep our cars close to our chest so, so much still? Well, I think, man, there was a lot in that sense. I, I think, uh, yeah, like I think we should know that those award-winning bars are hemorrhaging money. Like, I mean, I think that's absolutely an issue. That's another thing that we should talk about is like, I mean, because the expectations of would-be entrepreneurs are, are completely not accurate when it comes to what's doable. You know, they see this tip of the iceberg, this gem star, the bar portfolio, um, you know, like this, this award-winning place that is being propped up by either 10 other places that they own or the fact that they don't need to make money or that they're hemorrhaging money and nobody knows it. I mean, how many awards panels, you know, ha have I seen where some of the bars on the list, by the time the, the actual competition is over, they've closed. You know, it's like, how, how, is, this, how is this bar on the, on the list for world's best bar or, or best whatever, best blah, blah, blah. And they haven't, A, they haven't even been open for a year or they're already closing. And let's like, let's, that's a real conversation. And I know, I mean, it, it goes so deep. I know, I know it's very sentimental to some people that whose markets are just are not as sustainable. And I think that's where you, we have to start having conversations about negotiating leases and, and, uh, you know, like, look, if, if that, you might have to move. I mean, if you want to be an entrepreneur and be successful and sustainable, if you want to win awards, that's a different path. I have no advice for you. I mean, have millions of dollars, be ready to compete with people who have millions of dollars. That's it. If you want to make a living doing what you love, it is, you know, it is um, a possibility to be an entrepreneur in our industry. Um, but you might have to move somewhere that's a secondary or tertiary market. That's not a cool place to say you live just because those, those bubbles are bursting. The rents are outrageous. They're just not sustainable. Um, and then, you know, to your point about the putting on the show every night, I really believe that if you, we get back to what hospitality really is about caring for people. And if you're authentic and being able to care, if, if you are not greedy and you put together a business model that allows you to legitimately care about your staff, I have conversations with, you know, my entire staff weekly you know, how, are, how was your day? When they come through the door, I can say, how was your day? You know, how's it going? If someone was sick, I can, I can catch up with them. When you push the revenue ceiling so high, 
you know, like, oh, you know, we have this giant space and we have all these moving parts. Once it goes past that fulcrum of being able to authentically care for people, and that starts with you and your staff, then you're no longer in hospitality. And, you know, I'm not saying you can't be successful down that road, but it's just not anything I want to do. And, you know, you can have profitable models, you know, that, that start with that, that cornerstone of hospitality being, you know, that, that, that functional base. And if you just tether everything to that, you know, the, the, thing that, the, the right thing to do becomes obvious in cases. But we have so many toxic work environments in this industry. Like I said, there's, there's a, that, that start precisely because people are chasing money. And I think if you chase hospitality and you set the example of hospitality with your relationship and your staff, the money comes. Wow. Man, you're fierce. It is. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to like put, take everything in. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody will see that on the podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so 2021, you open up a new venue, Chartreuse Saloon. Um, it is an interesting sort of, I do agree with you that, that if you look at the silver lining um, for COVID, there is a huge opportunity there and the shifts are a very big play. What's the plan for 2021 um, now that we're sort of rolling into January and stuff? Where do you see this year sort of unfolding? Well, um, we're certainly not out of the woods politically, you know. I mean, I again, I'm small enough, I can take a political stance in my bars. We, we set out to provide safe spaces. And it's important to me that, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and, and LGBTQ safe spaces and, you know, and making, putting that front and center in our business model and putting it on the front window of, of the business. Like, look, you vote with your dollar. And if you don't want to support these causes, don't come and don't spend money with me. And I will never have something so big that, you know, that I, I am at the mercy of, of bowing down to, to, to let, let's please everybody kind of going back to that our industry needs to take a couple things on the chin, and that's another one of them. The price points are wrong. We talked about that already. Um, this idea that we got so big and greedy that we had to please everybody that walked in the door, that's where that customer's always right bullshit came from, and we all know that. We all know that that's ridiculous. You know, If two people come in the door and they, and they demand opposite things, it's a simple logic test that they both can't be right. So the real question is, what is your brand about? Know who you are. And know who you're there for and know who you're, you're not there for. It's okay to not be for everybody. And that doesn't have to be in a condescending, kind of a Jeez. condescending, exclusive way. <laughs> but it's like, look, you know, I don't have to tolerate behaviors. Again, hospitality, I, I always say this. I hate the word service because service is derived from the etymology of, you know, servitude, servile, servant. That's where we get that, you know, the customer's always right. You bow down to everybody who makes every demand. I like hospitality because hospitality is more of a welcome to my home, but this is my home and you will respect it. It gives you a position of authority within your business. I want to make sure you have an amazing evening, you know, and thank you so much for choosing us as your, your backdrop, but there are house rules just, just like there would be if you threw a, a party at your, at your house, you wouldn't allow one of your friends to harass another one of your friends. You wouldn't allow one of your friends to write on your bathroom wall or steal things from you. You know, it's like there are rules at your house. And I feel like if we, you know, if we can, again, get back to this concept of hospitality being welcome to my home. But I do request of you that you respect my home. And, you know, and, and, I, and that's where I feel there's opportunity. The Chartreuse Saloon is going to be, you know, honestly, just like a slightly upscale neighborhood bar. It's, I mean, I'm, it's not a fancy cocktail bar. It's, you know, it's uh, pool tables, nachos, you know, a place where people can feel comfortable um, and welcome. And, uh, um, you know, and, and just kind of leading the way on, on 
we can do things well on smaller levels, you know, that, like, again, that are sustainable. I feel like I keep saying that word, word that, you know, uh, um, set a different pace for our industry and kind of reestablish what, what entrepreneurship looks like. And do you think, do you think the realities of and self-awareness of entrepreneur, I, I was just talking to someone before I got on this live stream about how hospitality entrepreneurship almost has one more layer of regular entrepreneurship. It's usually a lot slower. It's not, like it is a completely different mindset because if you're in the tech world, you start something, you sell it after two years and away you go. Hospitality entrepreneurship has this sort of level and I've, I've talked to a lot of people. I've been on this new uh, social media platform called Clubhouse the last couple of weeks and there's a lot of marketing people who have become wine people and a lot of lawyers who started their own wine store and stuff like that because that's what they wanted to do when they retired like we were talking about earlier. Um, do you feel like hospitality entrepreneurship takes a, a very special and much more heightened level of awareness or self-awareness to really understand the direction you need to go in to be successful? I mean, it definitely, I think that's one of the most eye-opening things that happened when we opened the other room in Lincoln was that we broke all the rules for that market. And everybody told us, you know, this will never work. You know, you're a block from Husker stadium, you know, which everybody, you know, accurately says is the, it's the third largest city in, in the state when it's full and it's full every, every game. And, you know, and we didn't serve beer. We didn't, we, you know, so many businesses in that market um, literally rely on seven home game weekends financially because they are relying on that influx of, of uh, business on those weekends. And we, we weren't like anti-football. We just didn't cater to them. We didn't have TVs. We didn't serve beer. We didn't pack it in. We didn't increase our, we, we did nothing different. Every bar in Lincoln, Nebraska turns into a Husker bar on Husker weekends. We were like the only one that didn't. We did zero to accommodate or, um, and people just kept telling us all, all along the way, like this will never work. You know, there's, I mean, and lo and behold, you know, I mean, it's, it's been there since 2013 and it's flying perfectly steady. I mean, it is, I mean, other than the, the mandatory shutdown, it has not missed a beat. And it's because, you know, the, we realized there was an underserved market there. There were like, there's actually people there that don't care about football and no one is catering to them. And having a solid idea of what and who you are and who you're there for and never deviating from that, you know, that, that non-compromise, you know, I mean, sure you want to self-analyze and, and make adaptations where you need to, but it needs to be hard tethered to who you are. And I think so many places, you know, they open up with not a strong grasp of who they are or specifically who they're there for. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll base it off of like, oh, you know, there's a med center in the area. So we expect those people. I'm like, that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, who are you here for? Who do you want to walk in the door? Not who's wandering around outside. And a lot of people can't tell you that. They can't give you a hard idea of who their target demographic is. And as a result of that, they start, deviating from, you know, um, any sort of consistency, you know, they'll, they'll give something a month and I go, oh, that's not working. Let's have Moscow mule night or let's have, you know, let's do this. Let's have a, you know, and pretty soon they just kind of become non identifiable as, you know, and so they're, they're kind of like that everything to everybody again. And I'm not so arrogant as to believe that I'm, that everybody's going to love what I do. There's, you know, there's, we're not going to be everybody's jam, you know, and I'm happy to give somebody a recommendation like, Hey, you know, we don't serve beer, but if you're a beer person, I have so many great recommendations for you that are close by, you know, it, we know who we are and we know that we're not going to please everybody. And I, I want everybody to have a great night, even if it's not at my place, you know? So I think being small enough to be able to let, you know, to, to make a recommendation 
for somebody to have a, a, a better place somewhere else, you know, is, is a start. So I don't want to take up more of your time. You've dropped so many bombs. I, I've got so much stuff to think about. <laughs> Everything has been amazing. Um, I want to leave the the episode with one piece of advice you'd give a young bartender who's trying to make that or young manager who's trying to make that move to opening their own venue. Um, whether the driver is they've never worked for someone who is someone like you where they, they get nurtured and stuff like that. They just want to control a little bit more. What's the one piece of advice for an entrepreneur who's like, you know what, I want to open my own bar? Um, I would say it's two things. First, the, th the first thing you can do immediately is start working on the, the, your personal brand, your online presence, use your real name. Don't use any weird tagline. You are advertising for yourself every time you participate in a discussion. Um, when your name comes up, you know, that is a tagline, you know, little, little mini billboard out there for you. Um, uh, figure out what people you aspire to, to be like and start participating in their conversations you know, productively you know, don't be a shit show online. If you're going to ask somebody for, you know, $200,000 plus of their money, the first place they're going to go is go cyber stalk you. So be aware that your personal brand is front and center always, you know, don't, don't talk about guests in a negative way on, you know, I don't, don't rant about, you know, things you know, online that might cast you in a negative light to someone who wants to take you seriously as a potential business owner Two, work to work where you can gain measurables about yourself. You know, I, the, before the other room, I, I worked at a kind of a semi-private country club and I was lucky to have a good enough working relationship with the manager that I was able to get access to sales and like, Hey, if I implement this program, can you tell me where we are now? And can we monitor it for six months and tell me if we increase sales? And I was able to start building a personal measurable resume for myself so that when I went to the, you know, to a, a consulting gig, I could say, yeah, I know I, I, I grew their sales from this to this by implementing these processes, you know, make yourself worth something, you know, to investors, you have to have measurables. And if you're not working for people who are going to give you access to those, I realize it's a luxury to be able to switch jobs and not everybody can do that at a moment's notice, but work hard to work for people who will give you access to those measurables so you can start marketing yourself and knowing what role you're playing in the profitability of a business. Wow. I've loved this conversation. I, I knew it was going to be good. I knew it was going to be like really, really good. Um, I'm going to definitely reiterate to everybody, go uh, Google the TEDx talk from Jill. Um, it is spectacular. It's only 11 minutes long, but it's it drops more nuggets of epic goodness. Um, thank you so much for your time, Jill. I really hey, appreciate thanks. it. Have like a good day. You too. Yeah. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks for listening, Pose Shifters. I well, hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoy sitting down with friends and peers and uh, just chatting about the industry and getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's really going on out there. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, comment, everything on all the platforms. Just hit it up and I'll do my best to answer any queries or questions you have. I'll see you next week, guys. Bye.